One person says no. Three people say yes. I, I don't have control over turning the volume other than I can raise my volume. I can be presidential. Oh, that was a wisecrack, wasn't it? <laughs> All right, we have, uh, we have a, one announcement related to the conference, which is in a week, by, in a month rather. A month from today it will be over with, right? Yeah, we'll all be at home sleeping. I remember the first year we did it, we stayed and had Bible class on Thursday night because a lot of people at the conference wanted to stay. And I thought we were gonna, I was going to lose everybody in the church because they were tired. So got to take care of the sheep in more ways than one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can admit or acknowledge your sins to the Lord in the privacy of silent prayer, and then uh, after a few moments, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful that we have this time to come together to study your word. We know that in many areas of the world, there's very few who are prepared or able to teach the word. There is a a lack of teachers. There's a a lack of ability to meet freely. Uh, Believers have to meet in secret. And in many places, uh, there's tremendous persecution. And Father, we pray for those believers and we pray for uh, those in this country, those ministries that support them and seek to provide for uh, believers in difficult circumstances around the world, especially those who are living in uh, Muslim-dominated countries. Now, Father, we pray tonight for us as we study your word that we might be challenged and encouraged by what Paul exhibits in this passage and the significance of what we have been uh, learning in this passage, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles to Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to look at what we learned from Paul in terms of living to fulfill our spiritual mission. Last week, we looked at verses 19 to 24. And we saw that this is one of Paul's most developed statements related to 
uh, his occupation with Christ. And I asked the question, how are we to develop our own occupation with Christ? What do we do? And to answer that, we had to define occupation with Christ. So I want to review what we went through here, and I've added uh, a few verses and a few things here and there uh, to what we covered last time. So we talked about this, this terminology, and we asked the question, what does occupation mean in this context? And according to Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, it means to be totally focused or engrossed in a task or with a person. You might think about when you were first beginning to fall in love with your spouse or when you were first uh, maybe dating and you had your first girlfriend or boyfriend and you just were totally focused on them. And that's about as good analogy as we can come up with. We're totally focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't happen uh, very easily, and it doesn't happen simply. It's the result of growing to understand and know a person. So I define this by saying that occupied with Christ means to focus our attention on him, to think about him. But, see, a lot of people think about Jesus, and they say all kinds of things about, oh, how they love Jesus. But they don't know anything about Jesus. You have to know things about a person before you can come to know a person. Knowing a person comes with time, and it comes as a result of spending time with someone. And we can spend time with the Lord Jesus Christ by reading the Bible. Because this, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. We know his thinking from learning him through the scriptures. And it's so amazing because we have, we have this, this awful history in Western civilization as a result of you know, enlightenment thinking and then its consequence in terms of uh, its impact on liberal theology. And liberal theology shifted the interpretation of Scripture. And the funny thing is that we hear this wrong interpretation of the Bible and of Jesus in so much that when we read certain passages in Scripture, that's what comes to mind. In, instead of the truth, uh, you, you know, passages like turn the other cheek, and that's always used for trying to support pacifism and that we ought not ever do anything harsh in retaliation for what someone else or some uh, country does. But that's not what the verse is talking about at all. It's not a turning the other cheek when somebody slaps you on one cheek that you turn the other cheek. It's not talking about literal slapping. Was there a problem, really, in, in first century Israel that people were going around slapping each other on the cheek? I don't think so. What is it talking about? It's talking about an insult, somebody saying something that's insulting, and the idea of turning the other cheek is don't be so thin-skinned that you get all bent out of shape every time somebody says something that might offend you. This, ought to, this interpretation ought to be the motto for 
the snowflake generation because they get offended at everything. And the whole point Jesus is saying is is don't don't take offense at all of these things that deal with people in grace. So we have all these these things that come along that talk about Jesus within this liberal framework and it's influenced us through the way they portray ministers and churches on movies and in television and all of these kinds of things. But the only way to get to know Christ is to read your Bible and to be in Bible class so you come to understand what the proper interpretation of a lot of these passages is. And that takes time. It takes writing notes in your Bible as well. So we have to focus our attention and be fully engaged in learning who Jesus is, learning why he came to earth. His incarnation had two purposes. Most of you can state one of them, which was to go to the cross. That's the primary one. A secondary one was to offer the kingdom to Israel as a literal geopolitical kingdom that was in fulfillment of the uh, Davidic covenant and Old Testament promises. And a lot of people don't even understand that because they've been taught that the kingdom is some sort of inner spiritual thing and it's individual rather than a corporate thing. That also is something that is bequeathed to us from 19th century Protestant liberalism. And then that's connected with some sort of Marxist utopianism. And then we get a lot of really crazy, crazy ideas. But we have to understand Christ's mission in his coming, and then we have to understand his role in giving birth to the church, as it were, in Acts 2, when he sent the Holy Spirit, and that he is the head of the body, head of the church, and he's given the church a mission. And we have to understand, understand that. So first of all, related to that first uh, aspect of his coming, which is related to our salvation, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price. Now, every time we see that word bought in Scripture, it comes from a couple of different word groups, either a word group related to agorazo, which is the Greek word. Uh, agora was the word for the marketplace. It's where things were bought and sold. And the other word is lutrao, which has to do with paying a ransom. Price. So those are the two words that are used interchangeably in talking about buying something, and we usually translate them as well with the word redeemed. We've been purchased. We were, as Paul explains it in Romans 6, we're bought with a price. I mean, excuse me, we're, we are born slaves to our sin nature, and then we're bought with a price. Now, when you buy a slave with a price that doesn't that may free them from their former master but it doesn't give them freedom cuz now you they belong to you and that's Paul's analogy you were slaves to the sin nature slaves to unrighteousness and now we are bond slaves to Jesus Christ to righteousness but most people want to go back to the former master they're not ready to to live in righteousness. But that's Paul's using that same background of that slave market. 
in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. See, we were, the sin natures was our master, now God is, positionally. So this is, this is what we see going through here. Now, another passage in Philippians that we'll get to, see, we're still in the prelude. In Philippians 1, 3 through 11, we have the first part of the prelude. And then we get into the second part of the prelude, which is when Paul is taking different ideas in the first part and talking about them within the framework of his own life and his own personal a biography, as it were, from verse 12 down to verse 26. And so these ideas are foreshadow, excuse me, the ideas here foreshadow what he's going to talk more about later in the epistle. So in Philippians 3, 7 to 10, which is a difficult passage in some aspects, Paul says, but what things were gained to me these I have counted lost for Christ. Now, we all have things that over the course of our growing up and young adult years that we wanted to be able to do in life, Think, things we wanted to accomplish, places we wanted to travel to, um, people we wanted to be around, places we wanted to live. We all had all kinds of ideas that, that we wanted to achieve in, in life. But what Paul is saying here is we become more and more occupied with Christ and understanding his purpose for our life than that stuff that we thought would be gained to us, that it would bring us joy and happiness. We realize that's not, that that we we needed to shift our objectives and goals to Christ. So that's what he's talking about. The things that were gained to me, I've, I counted that as loss for Christ. Yet, he says, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, compared to the knowledge of Christ, knowledge about Christ, knowing him personally, faced, not face to face, but through, through the scriptures, that Everything else is lost. He says, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, all the things that he had achieved before. That's what comes up in the first six verses of the chapter. He says, I count, uh, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as manure. It's not rubbish. It's manure. It's scubala, a life's word I, I, I like. I like that. Uh, bull scubala, BS. That's what it stands for. Okay. Count them as manure that I may gain. And what he's talking about, he says gain Christ is how it's translated. But see, gain what about Christ? It's what he says earlier, the knowledge about Christ. Everything else he considers as just just horse manure. And then he goes on to say, and that I may gain, not only gain Christ, gain a more intimate knowledge of Christ, but be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. He's realizing that earlier he was gaining righteousness through the law as a Pharisee. 
But now he realizes that's impossible. All those works of righteousness are just scubala. But the righteousness we get by trusting Christ, that's what counts. And he says, then he concludes again, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Being conformed to his death has to do with that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection by the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So that is what gives us that, that new position in Christ. And then, a couple of verses later, he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, and by perfected he doesn't mean reaching a state of moral perfection or flawlessness, he means matured. We'll never reach the ultimate possibility of maturity. We're going to reach adulthood, but but there's a long way to go. And even probably the most mature believer that ever was was the Apostle Paul, and he still felt like he had a long way to go, but he was still mature. So we are constantly pressing on. And so that's what he says, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. What he's saying there is Christ laid hold of us for a reason, for a purpose. We have a mission. We have a role in the body of Christ. We are all members of the body of Christ, and we are members of one another, and we have been gifted in various ways to minister to one another in the body of Christ. We studied that quite a bit in our study in Ephesians on Sunday morning. Another important verse is Romans 8.29. Now, we're all familiar with Romans 8.28, that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we know God has a purpose for us from Romans 8.28. Romans 8.29, he's furthering developing the idea, and he explains it. That's why you see the four there. For whom he foreknew... He also predestined, and that word should be translated appointed, appointed to be conformed to the image of his son. We're to be conformed to the image of Christ. From the day you were regenerated, God's purpose for you is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So if you're a rebellious believer, you're constantly going to have struggles because the Holy Spirit is trying to turn you around because his job is to disconnect you from what you're depending on and get you to depend on the Lord and grow to spiritual maturity, which means that you're going to demonstrate a Christ-like character. That's described as the fruit of the Spirit. And so we are to be, that's God's goal for us, that he, that is Christ, not us, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. That is a title of distinction. So that is all part of what's happening within the body of Christ. Unpacking that uh, is, goes beyond what I want to do tonight. Then we come to Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and 20. Talked about this the other day. And this is the Great Commission. It is Christ speaking to his 11 disciples and outlining their mission. There's, it's a great summary statement. And grammatically, it's rather interesting. 
the first word to go is an aorist imperative. I mean, an aorist um, uh, aorist participle, which has to do with. I think it's emphasizing a. Uh, uh, it picks up an imperatival idea from the uh, from the imperatives to make disciples and to uh, and you make disciples by baptizing and by teaching them. So the command is make disciples. But when you have this kind of a grammatical construction, uh, the participle at the beginning picks up the imperative command idea of make disciples. So it's rightly translated, go. Uh, he's sending them out. In, in Acts 1.8, he says the same thing. He says, guys, you need to stay here uh, in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and then you will go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was their, their mission, was to take the gospel uh, throughout the world. And so... Uh, this the means the way you make disciples or students of the scripture is first of all by baptizing them, which summarizes their uh, coming to the knowledge of the truth, coming to the knowledge of of the gospel. Uh, we do that by and baptizing is sort of the after result of someone who has trusted in Christ, and because they have trusted in Christ, they are to be baptized by believers baptism following um following salvation and baptism isn't just an a ritual it is a training aid to teach us about positional truth because according to Romans 6 3 through 6 we've been identified with Christ in his death burial and resurrection which pl- and the holy spirit does that to place us into Christ as our position, placing us into the body of Christ. And so that is done. And the emphasis now, when we think about what it means, we've studied this so much in Psalms, doing things, give uh, praise the name of the Lord. Uh, we're not just praising the label, we're praising all that he is. The name of something in, in a Hebrew mindset represents the essence or the attributes of something. So when we're being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we're being baptized with reference to all that they are, their attributes, the essence of God, the attributes of God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then following that, following their birth, we're there to be taught. Notice it doesn't say... um, by baptizing them and by preaching to them. It doesn't say that. I get on this little hobby horse because I get sick and tired of the fact that we have interpreted, read our misunderstanding of the text and imposed a rhetorical style on the word to preach. And it doesn't mean to have a certain type of oratorical presentation. It means to, and and nearly, there's few exceptions. If the word is keruso, it usually has the gospel as its object, as the content. The other word that is often wrongly, I think, translated to preach is evangelizo, which we've studied, which means to proclaim the gospel. 
the good news. So you either are proclaiming the good news or you are giving people instruction. What passes for sermons today and preaching is more like a message of encouragement. And that's nice, but nobody's going to learn much or grow very fast. So preaching is just has destroyed much of Christianity. Now, the third thing we looked at was that Christ gave us a promise of abundant life so that we can grow and develop the capacity for uh, an abundant life. And he said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his purpose. But I have come, number one, that they may have life. That is the gift of eternal life. And number two, that they may have it more abundantly. So getting eternal life is what happens when you trust Christ as Savior. Getting abundant life is what happens when we grow and mature. We develop the capacity for life, the capacity to have joy and happiness and and all of the fruit of the Spirit, the capacity for love and kindness and graciousness. All of that comes as we grow, and that's part of the abundant life. Now, in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, we're told that we were our prior condition was to be dead. Now, that doesn't mean we couldn't hear things and couldn't see things and were mentally vacated like a corpse. That's what you will hear from many Calvinists. We were alienated from God. That's the term Paul says. I think it's Ephesians 4, 17. We're separated from God. And... We needed to be made alive again. We needed to regain that which Adam lost when he sinned, which is his human spirit, which I identify as the capacity to have a relationship with God. And at the instant of trusting Christ, we're made, he makes us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together. So that's all positional. That's our legal position in Christ. In 1 John 2, 4 and 5, as we saw last time, uh, John says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments. Now, that's a good thing to think about, all the people who run around saying, oh, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, and they don't know anything that Jesus said. Uh, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It doesn't mean he's not saved. He said to Philip, how long have you been with me, Philip, and you don't know me? Now, he had already said that Philip was a believer. So Philip was a believer with eternal life, but he didn't know Jesus yet, and he had spent three years with him. Judas was spent three years with Jesus, but he wasn't saved because he didn't believe on Jesus. It wasn't the issue of knowing. That's, again, one of these problems we have is we think knowing Jesus means being saved. We'll hear people say, right, do you know Jesus? And that's just because they've been poorly trained in their churches. Knowing Jesus is not what you have to do in order to be saved. You have to believe in Jesus. That's what it says over and over again. And uh, verse 5, whoever keeps his word, truly the love for God is matured in him. So how do we develop that love for God and the love for the Lord? It's through knowing his word. So how do we get there? We must realize and accept that this is to be our objective also, to glorify Christ, to magnify him. 
that we should think about that in our decision-making, our planning, how we spend money, how we make money. Uh, we should think about this in how we spend our leisure time. We should think about this as it relates to our, uh, to our work. Uh, second, B, to do so, we must come to know him. That only happens through growth. That only happens through learning his word and applying his word and following his commandments. Fifth thing, we have to adjust our mental attitude focus. This is really important. I remember the first time I looked at this at Matthew 6.33. I was in college, and it was just like one of those things that the Lord just sort of slaps you in, in the face. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things should be added to you. And it's in the context where it says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. So many people are consumed with the materialism lust, money lust, and and I understand that. We want a level of security. We want to be able to pay our bills. We want to be able to uh, provide for our family. That's important. But fundamentally, we have to trust the Lord for that and let him lead and guide us to a point where we are, are, are doing that within the framework of our relationship with him. And that's why he says, you know, the Gentiles, that's what they're all about. That's their end game. There's nothing beyond that. They're not eating drinking and wearing for the glory of God with an end game. They're eating, drinking, and wearing for their own, uh, to spend it on their own pleasures. For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. God's omniscient. He knows every problem, every difficulty, every challenging bill, and every financial problem any of us have. And he's known about it a lot longer than you've been alive. He's known about it for for eternity. And he was powerful enough, that's the value of his omnipotence, to provide us information in his word so we know how to address all these things. And that's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, he says this in the context of the early part of his ministry when the kingdom was being offered to Israel. But it still applies to us as believers today because the kingdom is is future and we will participate in the leadership of the kingdom as members of the body of Christ, as members of the church. So it has an application to us as well. Seek the kingdom of God, maturity, growth, preparation, because we'll rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God's going to take care of you. So six, occupation with Christ is developed along with our personal love for God, God the Father and our personal love for the Son. And as we do this and we make that relationship with God the priority, then we're going to develop that occupation with Christ. That's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, specifically 2. But but the condition of looking unto Jesus is preceded by uh, applying the Word of God. Uh, you don't just go out and say, well, I've got all these sins, I'm going to quit doing them, because that doesn't happen. You still have a sin nature. 
you lay it aside by looking unto Jesus. Okay? You, you put your focus on the Lord and not on the things that entice you uh, to sin, which is a good reason for not watching the news in the morning. Paul says, imitate me many times. But what he means is, as I also imitate Christ. What he's saying is, follow my example as long as I'm following the example of Jesus. Don't follow my example when I'm not following Jesus. In Hebrews 6, 12, he says the same thing, that you do not become sluggish. We've got a lot of sluggish believers. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. They own the promises. They take possession of them. They apply them. That's a faith rest drill. Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, uh, our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. 7. What's necessary to develop our love for God and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Mark 12 quotes the Old Testament. So this is just God's modus operandi throughout all the dispensations, Old Testament and New Testament. Love him with all your heart, with all your understanding. It's not putting your brain in neutral, which is basically what came out of Protestant liberalism in the 19th century. Protestant, the father of modern Protestant liberalism is a man by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher, who was a German theologian who had bought into all of the presuppositions of the Enlightenment. And when he got finished studying in, in seminary and studying all of the uh, higher and lower criticism that was coming out and was being taught in the s- s- seminaries, he said, the Bible's just not true. Let's throw it away. Oh, we can't do it because it has some good things and it'll scare people. So the Bible only becomes the Word of God when you feel like it is. His ultimate criteria was emotion. Does that make any sense to anybody? You see, don't anybody who does that? Their relationship with God is all defined by how they feel about Jesus. And that, that is the, the legacy of Protestant liberalism. It's not what the Bible teaches. So we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, heart, understanding, with all our soul, with all our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves is the second commandment. Uh, this is emphasized again, passages like John 14, if you love Jesus, you keep his commandments. Well, that means you have to know his commandments. That means you have to know the Bible. You have to understand the Bible. You have to understand that he's not talking about the Mosaic law. Uh, you have to learn so many things, otherwise you'll be be off in some cult somewhere. First John 5, 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So you can't love one another if you're not loving God and keeping his commandments. That's what that's saying. That's, that, that's a bright flash of the obvious for a lot of people. How do we know that we love the children of God? Not by how you feel. You've got a clear objective metric here, keeping God's commandments. So Paul expresses his confidence in this this section in chapter 1. We looked at last time, 19 down through 24. And I want to show you something that helps us understand what he's getting ready to say. 
He's expressing his confidence, and he reaches a confident conclusion that God wants him to live and not die. And it's an interesting structure, and it just hit me today. He says in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ. So prayer and the supply of Christ is the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. And the word for no is the word oida. There's basically two words for no in the Greek, gnosko and oida. Gnosko means to come to the knowledge of something. It's what we do whenever we study a new topic. We're coming to the knowledge of something. Oida is a confident knowledge of something. Sometimes it refers to God's omniscience. Sometimes it refers to just that we have come to a confident conclusion and knowledge about something. So Paul is saying, for I know confidently. See, that's how I've translated this on this slide. For I confidently know that this will turn out to my deliverance, my physical deliverance. So in, in verse 19, he's telling us what, the, what his conclusion is. But what happens is, that between 119 and 125, he it's not real obvious, but, but once you connect the dots, you realize what he's doing is he goes through his thought process, how he came to confidently know this, okay? So here I put it, I had to put it all on the slide, so... What's in between verse 19 and verse 25 is not important for this. This is a visual graphic. He starts off in 19 and he says, for, he says, oida, oida gar, for I confidently know. And then he tells us what? That this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supply of the Spirit of Christ. And then he goes through this, this background to live is Christ, to die is gain. Um, if I live on in the flesh, it'll mean fruit for my labor, and yet which one, I just don't know. So he's making the decision, and he reaches a conclusion. In Philippians 1.25, he says, And I have already become convinced. This is a verb, patho, which is a perfect tense verb here which means it's completed action. I have already become convinced. The word means to become convinced or persuaded of something. And since it's in the perfect tense, it's completed action in past time. I have already become convinced of this. I confidently know. See, he uses the same verb that he used back in 119. And that's what you have to connect. He is picking up the same thought here that he started with in 119. So that tells you that what's in between is talking about this, how did he come to confidently know? Because in, in 20 to 20, uh, 24, he's talking about uh, verse 23, for I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. What am I going to decide? And then he says, for I have become convinced. Okay, I have become convinced of this. I confidently know that I shall remain and continue with you all 
for your progress and joy of faith, for the purpose that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So let's just kind of pick up the context a little more, and we'll finish out the paragraph. He says, For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh, that is, in my physical body, it's more needful for you. So here's his options. On the column on the left, we're going to see that what, what, he, what remaining here involves. And on the right side, what face-to-face with Christ involves. So by remaining here, he recognizes that he's in a corrupt temporary tent. We know this, and we'll look at this passage in a little bit, in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, that we're in this earthen tent. It's a corrupt temporary tent. Face to face with Christ means we get an incorruptible, permanent, and perfect body. No flaws. Absolute, everybody will be absolutely perfectly beautiful. Remaining here, well, that is more adversity, pain, sorrow, mixed with joy. We go to Revelation 21, I think it's about verse 3 or 4, that when we get to heaven, there'll be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more tears, the old things have passed away. So when we are in heaven, it will be indescribable, permanent joy. We can't even imagine it. Remaining here, we're suffering in our corrupt mortality. Our bodies are decaying day by day, some faster than that, hour by hour. But when we're face-to-face with the Lord, we'll have the reality of a full, abundant life. We can't imagine that either. It's going to be beyond anything that we ever expected. Remaining here, we're absent from our Lord, who defines our life. And being face-to-face with Christ, we are face-to-face with him. We are in that close physical proximity. Remaining here, we're just in continuous spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Continuous, continuous spiritual warfare and the angelic revolt. But face-to-face with the Lord, we're at rest. We're at peace. We're out of the battle. And we're just waiting with the Lord for his final victory. And then last, remaining here, we're remaining in a sinful, sorrowful world. And we'll be in a perfect, sinless, flawless world when we're face-to-face with him. So if you had your choice between the left column and the right column, which one would you choose? Well, most of us are going to say, well, let's just go to the right column right now. But Paul has come to understand something. Now, we studied this passage in Ephesians 3 a year or so ago when we were in that part of Ephesians, where Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. See, he wrote Ephesians about the same time he wrote Philippians. 
And he's dealing here with the same issue. And that is that, that the Ephesians are kind of upset that what's happened to the gospel now that you're in jail? Who, who's care, taking the gospel around the world? How, you know, God's plan is failing. And so he's encouraging them. So he takes a little uh, sidestep to explain things. He said, if indeed you have heard of the administration of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. And if you remember, when we studied that, we saw that this phrase, the grace of God, which was given to me, is not talking about salvation. The grace of God, which was given to me, is talking about what? His apostolic call and commission. And you can trace it. You can look at where that phrase is used. Every time it's used, that's what Paul's describing. He's given a, a responsibility. That mission that Christ gives us is our responsibility in our Christian life. And he goes on in verse 3 to say, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. See, that grace of God which was given to me includes his responsibility as the apostle to the Gentiles, and that involved giving him new revelation related to this new entity that he just explained in chapter 2, that now in this dispensation that Jew and Gentile become united together in, as one in the body of Christ. And so he says, By revelation he made known to me this mystery, which when you read you'll understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And then he goes, Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. So they didn't know about it in the dispensation of of um, of the Gentiles or the dispensation of innocence or the dispensation of conscience or the dispensation of human government or in the age of Israel in the dispensation of um, uh, of promise or the di- or the dispensation of the patriarchs or the dispensation of the law uh, or in the time of Christ. These, it wasn't made known. It's not made known till the apostles for the church. He says, in other ages, this was made not, not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. That what? This relates to his mission. The Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's how that happens is through the gospel, through the proclamation of the gospel of which, that is, of this gospel, I became a minister according to the gift of the... Haven't we seen this phrase already? The gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So what's the point here that I'm making? Is that Paul comes face to face while he's in jail saying, well, I'd really much rather go to heaven than stay here. He categorizes and classifies everything I did, and he says, I need option A, but then he realizes God gave me a mission to take the gospel to, to expand the, the church, Jew and Gentile together, and that's more important than my personal comfort, my personal pleasure, or achieving the things that I thought would be gained, but they're, they're, those things are really lost for Christ. So that's what he said uh, before. So in Philippians 3, 1 through 3, I've already covered the rest of the chapter almost. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He's warning them. See, he's hit part of his mission as an apostle is to protect them from false teachers. 
And he needs to do that. He needs to stay in this life carrying out his mission because he needs to protect them from false teachers that are going to come up in their midst. He says, for me to write the same thing is not tedious. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Now, he's not talking about canines here. He's, he's talking about dogs was a uh, slur against Gentiles. And beware of evil workers and beware of the mutilation. These are the Jews that said you can't really be a Christian and go to heaven unless you get circumcised also. And he says, for we are the circumcision. We as church-age believers are the circumcision who worship God by means of the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Because Jesus says in John 4 that in the future generation, we're going to worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. And some people want to translate that in the Spirit and in the truth. But it's the means by which we worship God. And here it's the same thing, who worship God by means of the Spirit. It's not locative. So many people take it that way. And I I just can't figure out what that would mean other than some mystic kumbaya environment or something. It is by means of the Holy Spirit through the revelation of the New Testament and through coming to understand the New Testament. And so we are, that that's who he needs to be, is protecting them. And it, later in the chapter, he says, for many walk, many believers, walk of whom I, I've told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Now, that doesn't mean that the, it's the lake, lake of fire, but they're going to just have all their works destroyed at the judgment seat of Christ. Their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, and they set their mind on earthly things. These are rebellious believers. So we go back to verse 24. So here Paul says, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful to you. That's his bottom line. I've come to realize that as much as I'm going to enjoy heaven, I need to postpone it a while because it's more important in relation to the mission that God gave me that I stay here, suffer more, go through uh, prison more, uh, maybe shipwrecks more, whatever, but I need to be here for your sake. And so it is more needful uh, for more needful to you. So he's saying to remain in the flesh, that is the physical body. So he's he's not using flesh here like the sin nature. That would not be uh, be the Apostle Paul. Okay, so Paul shows his maturity and his selflessness. This is a combination of his personal sense of his eternal destiny what God is expecting of him, the future looking at the judgment seat of Christ, his personal love for God that he's developed, and his personal love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and his impersonal love for for all mankind, his impersonal love for the Philippians, and for those false teachers that are there in Philippi. So because he can love them, because even though they don't deserve it, that is the ones that are in opposition to him, he can... He can make the decision that I'm going to, it's better for me to stay than for me to go to be face-to-face with, with the Lord. So he realizes his earthly 
mission takes precedence. And that's where, that's the problem with a lot of believers, is they struggled their whole life with that struggle that's in the middle of these verses. They struggle with, well, do I really want to do what Jesus wants me to do? Do I really want to fulfill my mission? And and many people just don't even wake up to the fact that Jesus does have a mission for them. And, and it's really sad. And I think it's sad and unfortunate. And I'm not being critical of men who've done this. But it's sad that, that we live in a world where a lot of men that one of the things we see with Chafer Seminary is a large number of 40-year-olds and older who are coming to realize that, well, now that they've been married, some of them, they've, they've retired from one career going to another one, and maybe they need to do what God called them to do. And that's just a result of their own spiritual growth. It's not a criticism, but it's a reality in, in living in the kind of self-absorbed culture that we're living in in the 20th century. And we've all done that. We've all been impacted and made really bad decisions along the way, myself included, because we're products of our generation. It, we've let it influence us. Never, ever say, well, it, the reason I did it was I'm influenced by my culture. That's like Adam saying, well, the reason I ate that fruit is because of the woman. No, you're influenced by your culture, but culture can't make you do anything. And that's a problem. And a lot of people have trouble with that. But kids, well, you know, my kids, it just some of their friends, and this, it, they're trying to blame it on the environment. Well, God is going to show in the millennial kingdom that environment is no excuse because it's going to be perfect environment. And people are still going to rebel against God and against Jesus and against believers and to show that the problem is the sin nature. It's not our environment. It's not our education. It's not our parents. It's not our siblings. We have to learn to grow up. Now, this flesh, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 for a minute. 2 Corinthians 5 is just a tremendous passage. I remember hearing this read well in a movie. Can anybody tell me what movie that was? Some of you saw it. I know probably even most of you saw it. In Gods and Generals, Stonewall Jackson is sitting with his wife, and he is about to leave to go to what will become the first battle of, of uh, Manassas. And he's comforting her. He says, God, basically, to summarize in my own words, God has a plan for my life. And God's going to take care of me no matter what. And whatever his plan is, when, when we die, we're going to be face-to-face with the Lord, and we're going to be out of this earthen vessel. And they begin to read together from Second Corinthians 5. And it is so well read. I just had goosebumps going down my back, just chills. It was just tremendous. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked." For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, 
not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Notice the contrast there between this earthly body, this mortal body, where there's, and he says, but we will be clothed with life. Wow. When we get that resurrection body, we will have a new life that is beyond anything that we can imagine. Now, we have new life, and we can have abundant life to a degree here on this earth. But what we get when we are transformed into that resurrection body is beyond anything we can imagine. But what Paul is saying is, even though that's true, my job isn't to rush that. My job is to serve the Lord here and now. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful. And that word should be translated necessary. He recognizes it's necessary for him to be there for for the Philippians. Now, we've gone through on Sunday mornings, we've been looking at these 10 spiritual skills. And I want you to notice in this list, we've talked in the past about confession of sin Automatically, when we confess sin, we get back into right relationship with the Lord, which we call fellowship, which is walking by the Spirit. And then we stay there by claiming promises and doing what God says to do. That is energized by learning the Bible. What does the Bible teach? And orienting ourselves to the truth of the Bible. That's why Jesus prays to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. You can't get there without the truth of God's word. And then grace orientation. We have to align ourselves to the grace of God. So then we have on the right side, see, we've talked about Paul. What what does Paul bring to bear in making this decision? He brings to bear his personal sense of his eternal destiny. Earlier he had talked about the day of Christ. That's the judgment seat of Christ. He has personal love for God, and he wants to obey the Lord. He has uh, unconditional or impersonal love for all mankind. The word impersonal means that you don't have to have a personal relationship to love these people. And then occupation with Christ. All that is present in his decision-making ability, and that's going to bring him joy when he does that. And that is part of what comes up In in the next verses, he says, And because I have become fully persuaded of this, that's that perfect participle of patho, uh, I have already become, it's finished. He's fully persuaded of this. I confidently know that's that's our word, uh, oida. Patho is fully persuaded, and oida is I confidently know. This is very strong affirmation by Paul. 
I confidently know that I shall remain and will continue with you all for your progress and joy of the faith. So what's he say there in the last part? What is the progress and the joy of faith? So there's several different issues that have to be solved, and I'm going to tell you the results, not how you go through it. Is this the progress of faith and joy of faith? Is of faith a, a word that applies to both progress and joy? I don't think so. He's already been talking about the progress of their faith. So now he's talking about, when he's talking about progress all through here, it's the progress of their spiritual growth. So he said to continue with you all for your progress in your spiritual life and joy, which comes from faith, from utilizing the faith rest drill, because utilizing the faith rest drill is going to uh, put you in a position where you're trusting God, you're relying upon God to be your fortress and your shield and your buckler and your strong tower. And the result of trusting in God and walking with him is joy. That's why Paul starts, uh, James, excuse me, James starts off in James 1. He says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. If you really come to understand James, the rest of the book is telling you how to do that. It is the that's why I always put that as the last of the of these ten spiritual skills. We have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to learn of our personal sense of our eternal destiny and living in light of eternity. We have to develop our love for God. And with that, we develop the capacity to love people that are unlovable, unlikable. And we develop that impersonal love, that unconditional love for all mankind. And then uh, we have our occupation with Christ. And the result of this is it brings joy. We share the happiness of God. So it's progress. And that joy of faith is we have Christ's joy resulting from faith, from our trusting the Lord. Look at a passage like John in, in the upper room discourse. So Jesus is with his disciples in John 13. They have the Passover meal, and then he kicks Judas out and says, go do what you have to do. And then he begins to give them instruction of church-age doctrine. Then you go through chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and it's all about church age. I was talking about the coming of the, of the other comforter, uh, the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ. All of that is so rich. And he says in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you. What are the, these things? What he said in John 14 and up to that point in John 15, I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So Christ wants our joy to be full. Now, this isn't giddy happiness. This isn't something that is based on circumstances. It's based on the stability of our walk with the Lord. That's how we have joy. It's not emotional. It is mental attitude focus, and that brings us joy. John 16, 24, he says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, why? That your joy may be full. Jesus doesn't want you to be a miserable, unhappy Christian. But their conditions 
You can, you're going to be a miserable, unhappy Christian if you're not walking with the Lord and learning how to uh, love Him. Because all th- uh, interspersed all through this are these commands of Jesus that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John seventeen thirteen, In Jesus' high priestly prayers, He's praying to the Father just before the cross. He says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world... That they may have joy, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So the result of this in Philippians, where Paul says, being confident of this, have, having already reached a confident conclusion of this, being persuaded, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy as a result of your faith, for the purpose that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. And and what he is saying there is that as a result of their uh, spiritual growth and maturation, they'll develop a greater spiritual capacity uh, a capacity for spiritual things, which will give them a greater understanding and appreciation for God. So because they have a greater appreciation for the things of the Lord, they're going to be more excited to see Paul. The people who aren't excited to be Paul are those people he warned them about, the ones who made made their the God of their appetites is, is what that, that means. So that brings us to the end of the prelude. And just to remind you of a few things in terms of summary is that we have seen that this prelude has two parts. The first part has to do with Paul's prayer in verses 3 through 11. Verses 1 and 2 are the opening greeting and salutation. The prayer in 3 through 11 is broken into two parts. There's the thanksgiving from 3 through 8, and then there is his prayer in verses 9 to 11. In this prayer from 3 through 11, we have a lot of things stated that foreshadow some things that are in the second part of the prelude, verses 12 to 26, and in the rest of the epistle. And so he is praying for them. He is confident, and he's thankful for the fact that they financially supported him. That's what the good work is. And in verse 6, that's what their fellowship in the gospel is, their partnership, their financial partnership in the gospel. From the first day, that is from the day he left Philippi until the present, they're the only church on record that continuously financially supported Paul in his uh, missionary travels. And he says he's being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work, that good work in context, is supporting the gospel ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, We began a good work in you. We'll complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He mentions the day of Jesus Christ twice. He mentions it in verse 6, and he mentions it again at the end of verse 10. And that focuses on our uh, the purpose of our eternal destiny. That's living today in light of eternity. So he's focusing on that. But he recognizes that that they have been praying for him, and, and yet he's going through this suffering. He has basically been a prisoner for five years. And they're concerned about him. 
And then in verse 12 on, he, he reminds him, he says, I want you to know what's happened to me, that, that this isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing. This is God's plan, and it's turned out for the expansion of the gospel, the progress of the gospel, and it hasn't hindered it at all. So that it's evident that throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, the gospel has gone out because I get a different guard coming in here every so often, and I give them the gospel, and they go out and become a missionary into the Praetorian Guard and so forth. And so when basically what he's saying is Romans 8, 28. Uh, things may not look good, but God, uh, God's going to make everything work together for good. And he's working his plan, so we need to relax. And he said, this has also given courage to a lot of, uh, of the believers in Rome, and they're going out and witnessing and doing evangelism. And then he points out, he says, now I know some of them are doing it out of envy and they've got bad motives, but that's basically between them and the Lord. I'm just glad they are accurately presenting the gospel. Now I'll tell you, I haven't gotten there yet in my maturity. I watch these guys on TV and yes, they do give the gospel. And yes, for that, I'm thankful. But the rest of it, they are just deceiving so many people. Anyway, Paul didn't let that get him down. So he says that he rejoices and will rejoice. No matter what their motive is, Christ dying for our sins is made plain. And then he talks about the struggle. He says, I know that, that I could possibly die, and if I die, then, then that's gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But, and I don't know whether that has a lot of benefits, and there's a lot of problems staying here, but I don't know which to decide because it's really necessary for me to stay for you. And then he comes to his conclusion that I am convinced I have a confident knowledge that God wants me to stay here and I will continue to minister to you and that will end up in your joy when I come to visit you. So that's that's the opening. And now we're going to get start getting into some of the details as the first section begins with verse 27 and it starts talking about uh, standing fast in one spirit, being of one mind and all of this and then that leads to just the wonderful passage in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2 dealing with the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ and we're just going to have fun that whole second chapter is just full of great stuff and the third chapter is full of hard stuff so we're going to have fun father thank you for this time in your word thank you that we can learn these things by looking at Paul imitating him as he imitates you learning to love the Lord Jesus Christ, learning to obey him, learning to follow him, uh, learning to live today in light of eternity because you have a mission and a purpose for every one of us and that that is more important than anything else we might want to do in this life. And we need to focus on that mission and fulfill that mission uh, because that is what brings glory to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.